Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Killer Drones, Swarming Change to the Battlefields of the Future. Please welcome our host, John J.V. Venable, Senior Research Fellow for Defense Policy. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining us this afternoon. It is a great place to be, and we've got a great program for you. To give you a bit of an overview, I'm going to engage our uh, special guest, Dr. Seth Franzman, uh, throughout the next half hour or so, and then I'm going to field questions from the audience, and mine are liable to be softballs, but we're counting on you to come through with the heavy hitters. So please uh, take time to familiar yourself, familiarize yourself with that panel on the right side of your screen. And down at the bottom, you'll see a place where you can throw in questions and hammer away, and we'll catch them on the fly, guaranteed. Well, with that, let me take a minute to introduce to you my special guest. Seth, would you come up? Dr. Seth Franzman, Franzman was born in Maine and is a correspondent at the Jerusalem Post, where he lives, uh, right in the city of Jerusalem. He's the founder and director of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis, MRCA. And uh, Seth was, has reported extensively on the conflict in Iraq um, and other areas like Turkey, Jordan, Egypt, and Israel. And he's the author of two books. The first was After ISIS, America, Iran, and the struggle for the Middle East. And his most recent work is the one we're going to dwell on today, and that's Drone Wars, Pioneers Killing Machines, Artificial Intelligence, and the Battle for the Future. Seth, it's an honor and a privilege to have you with us today. The Thank you for having me. Your, absolutely. The, the publication of your book and this conversation were pretty timely, particularly in light of um, that last week's uh, Iranian attack on the Mercer Street, the, the tanker off the coast of Oman. Um, before we get to that attack, we spent a lot of time uh, in some of the hottest spots in the world. We've written on the hazards of walking the streets of Mosul, Iraq, and evading, among other things, snipers. For most of us mere mortals, that would be something to write a book about. What was it that captured you and your interest in Orleans on that trip? In terms of the interest in drones, well, when Mosul was under siege by the, the Iraqi army, which was trying to destroy Islamic State, which had actually declared a caliphate there, and it was a tough battle. It was going street by street, and I was there embedded with some of the Iraqis, and one thing that scared the heck out of them was that ISIS was using drones. And they were using these small commercial drones that you can purchase, um, let's say, online or, you know, or traffic across the border pretty easily. And they were putting grenades or mortars on them and dropping them onto Humvees and things like that. And the Iraqis had no way to defend themselves. You can't shoot these things down. They, don't, they didn't have any of these fancy guns to jam them. So, you know, it was amazing to feel that we were there with the Iraqi army, you know, with the Americans and, and a huge coalition at our backs. And all of us, and somehow the terrorists had at least an upper hand in this one strange niche. And that definitely is part of the opening of the book and it inspired me a bit. Fantastic. And a great introduction both to this conversation and the book. 
Uh, you know, the U.S. has been applying predators and its uh, sibling, the Reaper, since the 1990s. And employing them in Hunter Killer Road modes since around 2001 time frame. Um, those systems have allowed us to eliminate more than a few terrorists and armed factions, at least elements of them, um, around the world ever since. Uh, those drones are really sophisticated, as you know, and, and really expensive. And came after years of research and uh, development by organizations like DARPA and Big Safari. It's pretty evident now that some in the U.S. saw the value of unmanned systems early on. What were some of the hurdles that internal disputes at DOD about their use and development? Well, it's fascinating. I think, you know, the Americans saw what the Israelis had done with drones in 1982 to basically suppress Syrian air defense. And they, they thought this was a phenomenal weapon system. America, of course, had much more resources than Israel to plow into this. But one of the problems I think we come across again and again with U.S. procurement is just because you have lots of money and even if you have good ideas, procurement can go very slowly. And so what I found, you know, from researching it was they eventually did develop the Predator, which is a great system, has, has gone on to a long legacy of things like it. But there were a lot of other projects to build drones that were stealthy, for instance, or fly very, very high and can do surveillance for several days and can evade radar or evade SAMs, or smaller tactical level drones that you might deploy, for instance, with ground forces or U.S. Marine Corps. And almost all of those types of systems mostly didn't make it through uh, in terms of the 1990s, except for maybe the Google Hawks. A lot of them cost hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars in some cases, and nothing came out of it. And um, we're still we're still searching, I think, for those answers. Oddly enough, there were lots of people in the, the U.S. military or the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, that saw the potential of drones going back to the Gulf War and the Balkans and other times. They were hungry for the drones. Um, but usually the procurement just didn't put in the hands of the warfighters what they wanted. And as I said, I think we're still waiting, some of those people, whether it's the Marines or infantry, to get a hold of the machines and the tablets and all the things that they could actually really exploit on the battle. It's a great line. I was in the, the Pentagon uh, when the, this, these campaigns were really kicking off. And uh, we had a, a chief of staff of the Air Force named uh, General Mosley. And, and much of his staff, it kind of stiffed on the development, slowed it a bit, and kind of interesting perspective to add. You know, as the rest of the world watched us develop these systems and employ them, um, what did they learn about our, our time in the Middle East and our employment of these sophisticated weapons? Well, I think it's interesting. The original, when the Israelis first began to use drones to suppress air defense, they were building the drones because they had a need to make the take the pilots out of the planes to save lives. So they were going up against a sophisticated system. When the United States began to adopt the Predators and then things after it, like Global Hawks and Reapers, what they were doing it was in a world in which the U.S. was a global, global hegemon. The U.S. had time. The U.S. was fighting a global war on terror. And these were not contested environments. There were no surface-to-air missiles in general. Uh, being used by the Taliban, right? So drones were perfect for going after terrorists in areas where you have non-governed spaces or weak states, you know, whether it's Somalia, Afghanistan, parts of Pakistan, or, or parts of um, some, Africa or Yemen. 
drones were really perfectly built for that that niche of, of, of fighting terrorism because the thing about drones is it's a dull, dirty, and dangerous mission. You can let the drone or three drones sit around and hover for days on end, and someone in Nevada is watching the screen and waiting for that target of opportunity and waiting for no civilians to be next to the target. And that's something if you're in an F-16 or F-15, apparently, you, obviously, you can't do that all the time. So they were really well fit for that niche. But I think most of the world nowadays, whether it's China or Iran or Turkey, they're all developing drones, or Israel, they are trying to develop drones that I think meet the next challenges of the battlefield, which is, you know, peer-to-peer -peer adversaries, or how do you use drones, you know, in a contested environment against air defense, or how do you deploy uh, drone swarms or tactical, um, you know, loitering munitions or man-packable drones, all sorts of things like that. So I think they're trying to take what the U.S. did to kind of the next level, because in general, that global war on terror, as we see with Afghanistan, is mostly kind of wrapping up, I think, at least from the U.S. standpoint. Yeah, I'll tell you, when I looked at the footage of, of uh, the Syrian uh, rebels, uh, the drones that they used to attack Russian facilities, the air base and, and the naval facility, they seem to be put together like on the fly, something you could build at home. Was that something, this access to these uh, components, was that something that made them that much more employable for rebel factions in those regions? How did that come about? Well, I think we've learned, and one example is that, yeah, basically anyone can use these systems. I mean, not only can you basically build them out of styrofoam, like a school project, uh, but you can also buy components online, like kits, and then assemble pieces of them. And that's why, for instance, I think CENTCOM's head, uh, Kenneth McKenzie, said he's concerned massively about the drone threat, not just from, you know, countries like Iran, for instance, but all these non-state actors. So... What we saw with the Syrian rebels is, yes, I mean, the Russian air base is there uh, um, and the naval base in Syria have air defense systems. They have Panzer 22s. They have S-300s and other things. But, you know, when it comes to a bunch, a, a bunch of small drones that are, you know, no bigger than me, basically, uh, and you, you have 30 of them or 20 of them flying in with little warheads, it's not always easier for radar to pick them up because they might be flying low. They might mistake it for birds or something. And it's not always easy to engage them and shoot them down because what are you going to do? You're going to use missiles against a, a very a styrofoam drone? Are you going to use um, machine guns? What are you going to use against it? So I think that we all we see that now with these incidences in the Gulf and stuff like that, which is that it's not always easy to know what's the best system to defend against it. And these enemies are able to employ them on the cheap, like a kind of instant air force. They don't win wars with them, but they can wreak havoc with them. Absolutely. And the, the attack that we're talking about, um, I think the, uh, the rebels sent a bunch of them all at one time. And when you talk about really sophisticated systems like the S-300, you have to tune those systems where these birds, these little bitty, our remote control aircraft, RC aircraft, um, about that size and maybe less of a radar return, those get tuned out in the clutter. Um, yes. Tell me about this, the, the tactics they used on those two, the airfield and the naval facility attack, and what was different from what we had seen in the past? Well, I'm not as familiar with the nitty gritty of that, but as you said, in terms of the issue of how do you tackle those types of things and the struggle the Russians have had or, or other countries, whether it's Israel or the United States, it's a huge waste, by the way, to, to use a, even Iron Dome in Israel, which uses an interceptor, a missile. I mean, it's a huge waste to use missiles on these small things like that. So 
you know, there are companies out there building all sorts of interesting things. There's a company called Smart Shooter, which has a specialized rifle site that tracks the motion and can help you engage the target. There's a, a company called Extend that builds a drone that actually intercepts other drones by chop, shooting a net at them. So the Russians didn't have something like that. I don't, you know, I'm not as familiar. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure we can even trust entirely what whether what Russian media tell us they apparently did, which is down them or something. And maybe we probably can't really trust seeing rebel media that well out there. So I think what we do is we can see some of the wreckage of them. And I've seen wreckage like that as well in Iraq that were similar to some of the stuff ISIS was putting into play, which is um, small styrofoam or things you look like you build in a shop at home. Uh, we haven't seen a lot more Syrian rebel drone activity, I think, recently. That may be because um, the, the Turks who control the area have kind of told, told them to tone it down. But it was certainly interesting while it lasted for a year or two. And what it just, it's a lesson. It tells us any non-state actor or criminal group or a narco-terrorist Anyone can use this stuff, and we're going to see a lot more of it, I think, um, you know, whether it's Homeland Security or borders or wherever. Seth, I think you're exactly right in that uh, particular attack the, where the Russians were kind of overwhelmed. Um, they said that they knocked down, shot down, or electronically disabled uh, all of 14 or 16 drones that were inbound. But there's footage that's on the net and some pictures that kind of dispel that fog process. This is the first time I've seen what people call swarms of drones coming in. And this is, it, it seemed to be, at the time, pretty effective. Have U.S. programs run uh, by organizations like DARPA and Big Safari, have they looked at um, offensive drone swarms as a tactic? Yeah, the United States has looked at swarming technology, and I think it's important to draw a, diff a big difference here between what we saw in Syria or even the Iranian attack on Saudi Arabia, which is sometimes referred as a drone attack, a uh, swarm attack. These, these are large numbers of drones all flying towards targets, maybe even precision because they're guided in some ways with gyroscopes or GPS or something. But in general, I think we talk about real swarming, which is what the United States, Western militaries or Israel or, you know, high-tech nations are doing. The concept of the swarm is not just that I can send 20 predators to, to attack a target. That's fine. We can do that. It's whether or not you can get the artificial intelligence and the computers and algorithms to all talk to each other, for all the drones to talk to each other, for them to do things together. For instance, you can train drones to do a light show, which is cool. We've seen lots of things like that where thousands of drones do a light show. But that's not the swarming is like the next step, which is, I think, where the drones act together in unison, but there's also some sort of um, a mothership or a mind that sort of controls them to do things. And the drones are able to process information very quickly. And let's say, for instance, they're tasked with going after, I don't know, uh, air defense targets. As they suppress one or the other, they will intelligently decide to say, OK, that one's done. Let's go over here. Uh, or in the case of what Israel did with swarming technology, which is to, to put a bunch of drones over Gaza to look for where rockets were being fired from underground facilities, because it's very hard to have humans in the loop always watching every little square meter. But when you have 20 drones and they're all taking pictures and feeds at the same time, and they have automatic target recognition and artificial intelligence, and they have scene matching and things where they know what that bush has been doing for the last uh, three days, and all of a sudden that bush moved, the drones will tell you things that you as a person could never do. It's like a bit like Deep Blue playing chess or something. So the United States has, has played around with this type of stuff. We've seen more and more coverage of it. 
I think we're still a bit far from it being deployed. And probably one thing the U.S. military has an issue with is it's it's fine that Big Safari or DARPA can play around with it and get it to work. But if you're the U.S. Marines Corps, you say, well, okay, but what do I do with it? I mean, if you're um, a you know combatant commander or even a platoon officer or whatever, someone says, okay, we have drones. They can help you swarm. Okay, but what target do I want to swarm? So I think probably that's where we run into the next step is, okay, how do you actually deploy it? No, I think operationalizing it is the big challenge. I, I've watched footage of Marines uh, coming in over a target area and deploying uh, roughly a hundred of these drones that operate in unison, as you talked about. But you have to overfly the target, which is kind of not peer-to-peer competitor uh, operations, particularly with that bird. Um, so let's take a step back then and talk about what we have seen. Uh, in 2019, the Saudi oil refinery that was hit, and that shut down about 5% of the global oil supply. Could you talk about that attack? It wasn't obviously AI directed, but how sophisticated was it? And uh, what did we miss, or what did the defensive uh, perimeter around that miss in that attack? Well, that was a very interesting, sophisticated attack. And afterward, I wrote an article about it in which I interviewed some um, Israeli defense people, because obviously they they were concerned that this is the kind of thing that could happen in Israel. And one of them called it a Pearl Harbor like event. So that, I think, speaks to how important people felt it was. It involved uh, 20 or 25 drones and cruise missiles that were, were used to target two different facilities and pieces of the facilities themselves. Not all of them made it to target, but enough of them did that it wreaked some havoc. And I think that What's fascinating about that is, you know, Saudi Arabia has pretty sophisticated air defense systems, or at least it should. It's a very wealthy country. It has very good um, American equipment, and it's bought stuff from uh, from other Western nations as well. And yet Iran, a country that is under sanctions, uh, was able to fly all of these missiles and drones, uh, apparently over Kuwait or near Iraq somehow, to go around behind the facility, which they apparently knew the radars would not pick it up for whatever reason, or the radars were pointing the wrong way or, or turned off or something. And then pinpoint strikes, um, you can see online videos of what they hit, and it's it's one, two, three, four. It's not like these drones just fell in this facility. This isn't a V-1 rocket in the Second World War. It's not, it almost, it almost hit something. No, 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 these were quite pinpoint strikes, and I think that speaks to you know, some sort of GPS guidance and gyroscopes and, and pre-programmed guidance. I don't think the Iranians had, I don't think there's any evidence they were controlling them up until the moment of impact, i.e. they could call them off or move them. So I think that they, you know, that the Iranian tactic and what the Iranians have exported to Yemen and other places are drones that you, you fire and forget. You launch it and it goes somewhere. I do think we're probably going to see more examples now, maybe with the ship attack in which the drones are maybe being controlled up to impact or there's other things going on that would make them much, much more dangerous. So I think um, the Saudi the Saudi attack was a, was a big watershed. No one was killed. And I, I think we would point to that as, a, as also Iranian planning. I think they knew if they kill a bunch of workers, there will be retaliation. And if they kill Saudi citizens. So I do think it happened at a time of night when and, and against certain installations where they assume no one was going to be on the, at that place. And the warheads were not that huge, I don't think. So that points to real sophistication and thought to go into this, I, I think. Yeah, and there's some kind of intelligence back there, too. We'll, we'll step into that in a few minutes. But, you know, this is when you have several or multiple drones coming in. But even one 
uh, drone getting through a defensive perimeter can do a great deal of damage. There's there's footage on the net right now of a of a Syrian faction attacking the Syrian army, at least uh, one of their munition storage uh, facilities, which happened to be a soccer stadium. And this drone flew over the top of it, dropped a single munition, and that caused the entire depot to go up over the course of several hours. How hard is it to detect these small drones? And what systems, in your mind, uh, appear to be most viable? I think it's hard to detect them. I think that we've seen that in Iraq now with U.S. facilities. There are U.S. facilities in Iraq have come under rocket fire since 2019. Most of those were 107 millimeter rockets. And what we've seen is that the pro-Iranian militias have now graduated to using drones, unsurprisingly because the, the Houthis in Yemen are using drones, so is Hamas. So these factions are using the drones and they've begun to use them against U.S. facilities. And these U.S. facilities, you would assume, have not only detection systems, but should have uh, CRAM or the counter rockets artillery mortars, right? Which is a sort of a machine gun. So they should have systems to down them. And as far as we know, at least some of them have gotten through. At least one of them into Irville International Airport, which struck what the Washington Post said was a CIA hangar, which is in that very large coalition base. So again, it points to intelligence. It points to the fact they got it through somehow. And I think that we're starting to see a lot more of that. In terms of what systems can take them down, Israel's Iron Dome system was upgraded over the last several years. It was able to shoot down for the first time publicly uh, Hamas drones during this May conflict. Patriot missiles can shoot them down. But again, you're spending a lot of money maybe to shoot down something quite small. You can use drones to shoot down drones or drones to draw a hit drones or drop a net on them. You can also use lasers to shoot them down or microwave weapons. And we're seeing a lot more tinkering with laser systems, which I think will be deployed pretty soon in Israel and probably by the U.S. and other places. The microwave weapons are, are, being, are moving out there. I think we're going to see, of course, electronic warfare and jamming is something you can do. So I think there's a lot of systems being worked on. I don't think they're being deployed systematically very well. And I think that's a big problem. And I think that's what Central Command has warned about. And we're seeing it. I think we're seeing it every day in the Middle East. So it's a problem. Yeah, it is a problem. And you talk about the layers of defense, particularly around Jerusalem, for example, um, a failing system, something with a, uh, a Gatling gun, anti-aircraft system might cause more damage uh, with those rounds landing in the uh, countryside than otherwise. So. These, uh, these EMP or these uh, systems that disable uh, individual drones, um, those will come uh, have to become more and more viable over time. Let, let's dive uh, a, a little bit deeper into the area. In your whole drone wars, you talk about Turkish drone employment against the Syrians, where they destroyed over 150 tanks. Uh, that fight largely was overlooked here in the States, but about six months later, the footage that came out of the uh, Azerbaijani-Armenian conflict would be just how devastating these little suicide drones could be. It just didn't seem to be a place where troops or armor uh, could hide. In light of the number of drones that were employed in that conflict, what kind of systems do you think could provide a, a really good area of defense uh, for those field of war? Well, those, those conflicts, as you said, are very interesting, and I have been overlooked a bit. I would say that in terms of my feeling of drone wars where drone technology, we're looking at 
that's like the 1930s in, in Spain or something. It's a conflict that is small, but foreshadows the next real conflict, which in the case of those, those years was the Second World War. But in our case, it's something else. Um, what's fascinating, so the, the, uh, the Turkish drones are not that big and they're relatively slow, but they have lots of missiles on them. And Turkey was able to use them very well against Syrian tanks and things like that. And what's a bit fascinating there is the Russians have a system like the Panzer 22 that should be able to shoot them down. The, the Panzer 22 is not a is not a bad system, but the operators did not use it effectively. And we saw again then in, in Libya as well, Turkish drones went after and destroyed Panzer 22s and whose operators were, were apparently a bit incompetent. I think that that Azerbaijan company is even more interesting because it looks like the Azeris spent a lot of money investing in a kind of instant air force. <coughs> Azerbaijan couldn't acquire F-35s. What they could do was acquire Israeli drones like the Harpy and Harps, which are used specifically only to go after air defense systems and radars and basically blind an enemy and then go after, you know, what they did with the Turkish drones and other things, go after tanks and, and artillery systems and stuff. In a way, what that what that reminds us of, I think, is the 1991 Gulf War, in which the United States used a very effective air war to totally destroy Saddam's army within about 30 or 40 days. And Azerbaijan did that, you know, on the cheap. It it pretty much decimated this Armenian uh, Armenian armed forces that were positioned there, and it used a combination of layers of drones, including the Israeli and Turkish systems. It also used, I think. Um, small planes that were decoys that had were unmanned as well. So they, they really did a lot of interesting things. Look, Armenia is a relatively poor, isolated country. So, you know, Armenia lost that conflict. I think that the the next type of conflict we, we might see with you know peer-to-peer -peer adversaries, it won't be a walk in the park. So what we saw there is an example of what drones can do. It's obviously a lesson to air defenders. They need better systems, better operators, better radar. Um, and they need to also be have better intelligence about what their enemy is going to throw at them, because I would have thought the Armenians knew what was coming because they I mean, you can read press reports of what Azerbaijan was buying. So, you know, if you're an, if you're a military, you better you better be ready. And I think that like any war, like when France in 1940, they knew what the Germans were going to throw at them. So it's a question of whose doctrine works better, I guess. Yeah, and, and who's willing to move on the intelligence means. So I want to encourage the audience to, to catch up to a few. We've got several in the hopper, and one is tied to this discussion. It's like, what do you think the strength of high-powered microwave, HPM technologies, are comparative to other counter-UAS systems? Um, look, I would say I'm not a really a tech guy, and I, I loved writing this book, and I covered a lot of ground in it. I'm not an expert enough in something like that to say whether I think it would work or doesn't work against other things. What I do know is that the systems we have seen, like Iron Dome system is very, very effective. We know that these laser weapons are interesting. We haven't seen them used. Um, I don't think the CRAM, you know, Matt, I don't really think using Gatley guns to shoot down drones is very smart, so, or effective necessarily. So I would think that microwave, microwaves sound great. If it works, it works. I mean. I don't, I think we maybe saw it, did we see it on the USS Boxer use it against a drone? I don't know. We haven't seen a lot of examples of it being used in the field. So I guess it remains to be seen if it will be deployed widely and then, you know, actually meet with the drones because it's not just a question of can you deploy it? It's a question is, okay, does the, does the operator actually have the good luck of ever getting to use it? So I guess we'll, we'll see.
Yeah, it's a great question, and it goes into how many are coming at you. If this is the uh, Armenian-Azerbaijani war, there were a gazillion of these guys flying around. Each were controlled by seemingly a different little center, and so trying to take out the center wasn't going to be a threat. And trying to take out those individual drones, well, it overwhelmed the defenses at least to a degree. And so the idea of having um, a, like a, a rifleman shooting down one drone is an idea, but you're talking about this many drones being airborne and coming after you at one time, and having a microwave system, something that can take on multiple threats at one time, be a great thing. The United States has done a great deal of work with lasers, and these lasers are getting higher and higher power, but still, yes. the development it takes to shoot them um, makes you want for something like, I don't know, the Matrix and an EMP button that you get and things just fall out of the sky. It will be interesting to see where that goes. Yes. Yeah. I'll tell you, the recent uh, Iranian attack that we opened with took place off the coast of, of Oman, the, the island of Masira, and that, that place, that island, is a little bit dislocated from any of the other Iranian factions or uh, the Iranian coastline itself. It's 300 miles southwest of Iran, 400 nautical miles from Qasem, their, their island where they've launched a lot of uh, drones, and then 400 nautical miles east of the Yemeni border where, where you have a lot of Iranian factions operating. Could you talk about, about what you know about that attack and how the Iranians might have you know, taken carried it out? Well, what we know, I guess, is that we know it was, it was several drones, apparently. We know that from the pictures that and the drone impacts we see were on the bridge. They were certainly uh, designed to probably kill crew members, you know, because they could have just targeted freight or other things on the ship. And it looks like they came from above. I mean, we've seen videos, of course, of Iranian drones that do things like that. So that's a type of loitering munition that was used. Um, Iran has rolled out large numbers of slightly, all slightly different types, but similar concept in terms of that, which is you know, pre-programmable drones that are able to fly into something. I think the big question mark then is, well, wait, this is a ship and ships move around. So it's, it's how do you, how do you, someone probably had to be there in the loop guiding it in, you'd think, because how other, how otherwise does the drone, I mean, the ship, the ship shifts a tiny bit and the drone overflies it and goes in the sea. And that's, a, and then, and then it's just an embarrassment. So they, then someone nets it, picks it up with a net and says, oh, you see Iran built this. So that would be really not great for them. I would. It looks like a very sophisticated complex attack. We've seen the UK, US, Israel all point fingers at Iran quite quickly, which tends to mean that there is some intelligence behind that. It's it's a it's a determination that would would have been made with some clarity. So I think that I mean I think Blinken mentioned you know one way Iranian you know drones in in his statement. So it was not it was not just something random like well this is an Iranian attack. They mentioned the type of system used. I think, you know, the question will be whether or not it's a new system we never saw before or new types of capabilities and technology and communications. As you noted, where did it fly from? Did it come from an island or did it, what did it fly from a ship? And if it flew from a ship, so where is that ship? Who guided it? Um, are they, how does that work? I mean, Iran has put drones on ships before. It's not, a, it's not, it's not, that's not necessarily new, but um, I think, you know, de determining how that, what they did there apparently will probably eventually be explained. And I think then we'll see 
what type of dangerous new technology they're employing in, in that area or perhaps in other areas that they have access to, like Mediterranean or um, Caribbean or wherever? They're all good points. No, the United States, and I think Israel has lost several drones that the Iranians have gotten a hold of. Uh, some of them are very classified, and at least uh, from appearances, appear to have stealth features from, from the United States law. How much of that technology do you think they've been able to, to carry forward? So if you think about uh, our, our MQ-1s and our MQ-9, the Reaper particularly, it has a sophisticated satellite system. We communicate with it. There's an inherent delay with that. And it has uh, optics on board that allows us to, to fire precision-guided munitions at those targets. Do you think that uh, Iran has stepped up their game at that level to make this attack kind of materialize? I assume they're still behind because, I mean, we, we, they could, you know, they, they could still be 20 years behind and still have pretty dangerous technology. I think in the end of the day, that's right. They've captured a Sentinel. They found Reapers. They probably found even some Israeli drones. Some were trafficked parts of them from somewhere. And they've tried to reverse engineer things that look like them, at least on the outside. But as you noted, what? Yeah, but what's on the inside? You know, how good are the optics? How good is the is the communications? What's radar and other things? You know, and I I think that's the big question mark. What we've seen in the videos is they tried to put missiles on them. They claim that they can fire missiles from them again, but that's a twenty that's a twenty year old technology or twenty one or twenty two years old, right? I mean, the Americans have had hellfires and things on predators for quite a while. So, okay, so they're they've reached two thousand or two thousand one. I mean. I don't know about others. The, the question of the communications and, and the video and real time, real time streaming video coming back. Are they really able to process that and sit in Tehran and, and watch their drones fly around? I know that they use drones to monitor their ballistic missile attacks, apparently, in Syria against ISIS. So that's interesting. They use drones to monitor attacks on uh, Kurdish dissident groups in, uh, in northern Iraq and Koya. So they've used them to do all sorts of interesting surveillance and bring back close to real-time information, maybe to maybe to proxy groups that are nearby. Um, I think that's the big question mark is what we you know where, how far have they gotten? How far can the drones fly? And, and what kind of precision can damage can they, can they do? And we're, we're seeing lots and lots of evidence come out of, of different little, let's say data points, I guess. No, you're exactly right. A couple of frustrations and questions that are pointed out by our audience. A gentleman named Kent Lawbaum, who I happen to know from a, a galaxy far, far away, um, said we need the high-power microwave systems in large numbers. Where are they? Why is it taking the U.S. so long to develop such, such systems? Do you think this goes back into the priority mix that we talked about earlier, that uh, the people who want the big systems uh, for employing um, uh, let's say uh, the F-35 or satellite technology, you think they're carrying the day and we're not paying enough attention to these systems? I mean, it does seem like the procurement is, is pretty slow and the priority is not put on deploying them widely with, at U.S. bases, with U.S. forces abroad, with allies and partners, I mean, or at strategic infrastructure and things like that. So I assume that, I guess everything in life tends to be like necessity, right? I mean, if you... If you're not having casualties in the field from something, so you're not going to build something to stop it. I mean, if, if APGNs are not destroying your tanks or IEDs or whatever, I mean, 
you're might you're not going to necessarily have something to deal with it. I mean, we the United States military lost a lot of soldiers to IEDs, right, in Iraq after 2003. So we're always, there's always a learning curve with these types of things. I assume with the drones. You know, people may want these systems, but again, you've got to train people to work them. You have to deploy them. You have to have units that operate them or what have you. So I guess there's a lot of different, you know, hiccups along the way. And unlike defending Israel with Iron Dome or something, where Israel has, you know, multi-layered air defense and it's integrated, Israel's a tiny country comparatively. How do you really defend Saudi Arabia? How do you defend American forces deployed all across the Pacific. And where do you decide to actually deploy the systems? Because maybe you don't need them everywhere. So there's just too many, I guess there's just too many, I, I see it. There's a lot of question marks along the way to even get where you want to get, uh, regardless of procurement and budgets and whether or not the F-35 sucked everything up and, and people that are interested in air defense are seen as like nerds that don't matter or something. It's going to be a challenge uh, for the foreseeable future or until that event that you mentioned takes place. Your cavalry gets mowed down by a machine gun. Maybe it's time to actually to invest in tanks. And this uh, this may go down that same path where failure is the biggest incentive to, to start really getting serious about it. So uh, perhaps the biggest elephant in the room and something that you touch on uh, significantly in the book is artificial intelligence. How will AI shape the employment and effectiveness of these systems at, in the future? Is it game over for those who can't keep up with that technology? Or, or once AI really starts coming into play, will tactics be an effective counter to, to big peer competitors who employ AI with I think, you know, everyone uses AI these days and talking about modernizing military like that and we hear about AI being stuck on everything you know from, from rifles to tanks or wherever I mean it's there I think there's a lot it's a bit of a buzzword the question I guess is with AI is okay what can it definitely do for you in terms of wrong and things like that it looks like the type of you know software and things like that that are helping you with algorithms to sift through all the information that comes in and not have to have human operators looking at screens all day you know saying well wait did that did that move? I mean, well, that makes sense, right? I mean, it's preferable to have the machine not only have a whole data set of what did this area look like for the last year, but the artificial intelligence can do all sorts of interesting things. It can look at all the patterns of, of traffic or movement and things and tell you, oh, wait, wait, this vehicle is doing something different than it's supposed to be doing. This vehicle we think has uh, an RPG in the back, not a broomstick, right? So it can segregate information. It can do art, art, um, automatic target recognition. It can do all sorts of things for you to take the workload off the person. And the idea is to close the gap or the speed in which you have a, the sensor to shooter. So for instance, that, okay, the AI has processed all this information. It thinks that this is an interesting target you should look at. Let's zoom in on that. And then the, the human in the loop will make the final decision about what what munition to use or what force to employ or, or what effect or whatever fancy term is used for that. So I think that that's where we're gonna see AI do a lot more work for people, which is helping to identify threats and sources of fire and things like that. Um, I think the question we hear about a lot in media is like this idea that, yeah, but the computers will decide to start killing people or whatever. I mean. That's a bit nonsensical because I don't know any military commander out there that would tell his platoon, you know what, I'll just trust the computers to let decide everything. I mean, why, why, why would any general want machines to do all of it when the nature of things is that someone wants to decide, 
not just not just take their hands off. So I guess we'll see with peer with peer adversaries. Yes, AI is a big problem. I think that you know China and countries like that using sophisticated programs to throw a lot of drones at, a, at an aircraft carrier or throw them at strategic infrastructure or missiles and things. Yes, it's a it's a big issue is making sure that our cyber and and tech keeps up with whatever is apparently being thought about on the other side. Seth, I loved your uh, your description there and your thought about what the commander would want to take is is basically his finger off the switch and get that control over uh, to a machine. It's interesting and particularly in light of the chief of staff of the Air Force, the last one, his name is uh, Dave Goldfinn. Uh, he mentioned, and he actually is advocating for get the human out of the loop and allow the machinery to, to accelerate that that process and that uh, killing process, if you will. So this leads into a, a question and kind of an assertion by uh, one of our audience members, John Broomhead, who, who basically said, should the United States not be leaving uh, something like a, a convention of the Geneva Accords to start um, limiting um, AI's involvement in these situations. Is that something you think has potential, or do you think the world at hand right now would, would basically ignore something initiative? I mean, I just think history tells us, unfortunately, that the liberal international world order that uh, was people attempted to put into place in the 1990s with Bush, H.W. Bush, and Clinton, those types of administrations, I just think. We've seen this before by the 1920s when when idealistic people wanted to outlaw the use of war. I mean, like the Kellogg-Briand Pact, it just apparently didn't work because what you have is authoritarian regimes out there that don't care. So the, the US, of course, the US and Europe and, and friends and partners, you know, it's, it's good to talk about, you know, killer robots and how we want to allow, what we want to do with these things. And, and can we deny certain technology to adversaries? That's, that's, of course, a good discussion to have. We should be realistic with the fact that, you know, adversaries or near-peer adversaries, whether it's China or, or Russia or Iran or what have you, is, they're going to do whatever they want. And we see that, by the way, whether it's the annexation of Crimea or we see that you know, in the South Pacific or whatever, South China Sea with the islands. I mean... Where is there an example of where international law really works? So I think that, unfortunately, it's good to try to do it. I think we should be realistic and say, at the same time, okay, let's have a working group also that says, let's say that doesn't work, then what do we do? How do we confront an enemy that puts in, in place um, killer robots in a sense of, let's say, unmanned vehicles with unmanned submarines and unmanned systems in the air, all swarming to attack a place like Taiwan? How do we stop that? So I would assume that that would be a good thing for planners to consider as well. Yeah, it's always um, you, you set the rules and who's going to abide by them. At the end of the war, um, if, if the, the person who didn't abide by those rules wins the war, there's no accountability. So you know, I think you're exactly right. We need to plan for both opportunities, as it were. Finally, um, most of our examples of the drones we've discussed so far being employed in combat by small in small conflicts and by third world armies. How does China and Russia view these systems, and what can we expect in the next tier level? Well, that's a that's a big and important question. It's probably an elephant in the room, at least in the China part. Uh, Russia Russia is interesting because Russia is a, certainly a high tech, very smart country, big Cold War adversary. You know. 
there's no shortage of interesting weird tech they built during the Soviet era. But from what I can tell from the research I did, they on the drones, they were, they were really quite behind. They're not fielding lots of interesting drones. They've certainly used drones uh, in the Donbass and places like that. I was in the Donbass with the Ukrainian army and we could hear a Russian drone. So they have them, but uh, but they're not, I don't think that's sophisticated. I think that China is the real story. China is the country that is building large numbers of drones. It's building them quickly. It's willing to not take a long time of procurement and just throw a whole bunch of things at the wall and see what, what hits. They're also willing to sell them anywhere. So they're a lot cheaper than predators. That Yeah, it's a knockoff. It doesn't fly as far as long. It overheats. It's not as accurate. Fine. But people are hungry for that. And you're seeing countries, U.S. partners or allies or friends, buying Chinese equipment all over the place because the United States was reticent to sell predators and reapers for many, for many different reasons. China is building a lot of stuff. There's some, you, you mentioned sometimes the videos you can find online. There's pictures online where China has purposely lined up 30 different drones of all categories for satellites to see and basically been like, look what we have. So, and then the question is, okay, well, what, what are we not seeing that they, they also probably have? So there's a lot of stuff out there. And I think given how much China is investing in its Navy and how quickly they're building um, carriers and things, people should be very concerned about China putting in putting in place, you know, a kind of drone army of, you know, thousands of these types of things. They have the budgets, they have the flexibility and rapidity, and they're willing to try new systems and not be burdened by the past, um, which I think, you know, reminds us of other wars when, when a country decided to try a totally new system and then and it did really shock its its enemies, at least. And I mentioned, of course, it, things like 1940 or whatever. I mean, we can look to the past as instructive of wait when a system just totally changed or a doctrine. And I think we should, you know, people should be seriously looking at what are the Chinese doing in their field exercises? Are they innovating with unmanned systems in ways that, that maybe we're not? Because Australia is doing interesting things with loyal wingmen and stuff, and that's great. And there's mum tea or this man on man teaming. It's great. Western military should try all of that, but it's not usually being done in a, in a big way with thousands of systems. It's like five systems. And that's where I think we have to wonder about whether we invested in vanity projects and exotic projects and not mass. Well, fantastic finish. Um, I, I want to thank you, Seth, for taking time with us. Ladies and gentlemen, I highly commend his book, uh, Drone Wars. It's over my shoulder here to you all. And uh, I would like you to consider two things. One is we're going to send you a survey here shortly. We'd love for you to take some time to fill it out. And two, if you have any lingering questions, you can send them to us directly, and we'll do our best to answer them. Uh, Seth, my pleasure to host you. Thank you for being with us tonight. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your time, and uh, we look forward to the next opportunity to chat with you down the line. Good afternoon, everybody.